0: Morning everyone. Good to see you all. It's great to be together and great to worship the Lord. Um, thanks guys for leading us so wonderfully this morning. Um, so we're going to um, crack on here with our uh, Unfolding the Great Commission series and particularly around this theme of origins and rediscovering some of the early traits and characteristics that marked out the life of the church. And uh, <clears throat> we've been We've been trying to help um, ourselves understand a little bit more about how the early church this initially Jewish minority persecuted even sect were going to become a global Gentile phenomenon that was going to move across the world which is still unfolding today and so uh, uh, there's uh, so, so much that we can learn, so much we can apply to our lives. We've looked at um, some of the different um, characteristics over the last few weeks. We looked at prayer and communion and breaking of bread and fellowship and how these were early traits of the house churches, I suppose, that met in and around um, the beginning of the early church. And the last week, we um, we, th- we took the fourth one of the characteristics on and Philip, or sorry, Acts chapter 2, we're going to get to Philippines later, and it says that we've read this many times over the last number of weeks, they devoted themselves to the Apostles teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so we've been asking ourselves, um, what really is and was the Apostles' doctrine? Because um, it's a much more nuanced um, uh, understanding than just simply thinking that they sat around like good evangelicals doing a Bible study, that it was a bit more than that, because the, the reality was they didn't have a Bible. They certainly didn't have a New Testament, because it hadn't been written yet. Um, they did have the Old Testament, but they probably wouldn't have one themselves, plus most of them couldn't read or write, probably, so um, so when it says they were committed to the Apostles' Doctrine, what I was trying to get at last week, was well, what does that really mean? What does that really, really mean? Uh, Make us think. And so, what I want to do today is I want to recap a little bit what I said last week. I'm going to use pretty much the same headings as I used last week, but I'm going to try and fill it out a little bit with some more stuff that I didn't get to last week. Is that all right? So, hopefully, it'll not be um, too repetitive because I really want this stuff to land because I think it's crucial to the kind of way, the key word there is the way that we um, do church. And the way we want to do church and the way we feel God's calling us to lead church. And so we started off last week by asking ourselves this question, what really was the Apostles' Doctrine? If they were devoted to it, if they were, you know, their hearts were set on it like they were to prayer and communion with God and then breaking bread together, remembering what Jesus had done and the way that he had lived, Bruna shared about a few weeks ago, and then if they were committed to the fellowship and to one another and this deep one-mindedness. What does it mean that if the other ingredient was the Apostles' Doctrine, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that. <laughs> is Johnny away, is he? We'll get him when he comes in. Okay. Oh, there we are. We're back. Praise the Lord. That's much better, right? The story and the teachings of Jesus, okay? That is... um. Uh, the essential element, <laughs> core thread of the Apostles' Doctrine. Now we're going to break that down, okay. So, so a little bit of what I said last week and a, and a bit more. Um, this, so essentially, what we have to kind of think in terms of the, the narrative of how the early church is unfolding, if you put it like that, if you follow the flow, that the, the disciples had followed Jesus for three years. They had apprenticed Jesus, right? They, and the disciples then became the Apostles. And they had apprenticed Jesus in the things that Jesus had taught and the things that Jesus had done. So they'd watched him do them. And the Apostles' Doctrine in its simplest form was continuing that message, continuing that way of life. They had told the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and his teachings. And for the most part, they did that orally, right? They they did that uh, in, in and through story as they sat around the table, as they sat around fires or whatever they did, they told the story of Jesus. And can you imagine, so Jesus would have been brought up in a tradition where his mom, Mary, would have sat him down and told him the stories of the Israelites and the Jews. That was their story. That was the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of coming through Egypt, the great stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. All of those, Jesus would have known David and how... Um, Israel lived through its glory days through King David and through King Solomon, all of those stories. But now they were telling those stories in an updated version. Because what the apostles were claiming was that this whole story that they as Jews had known for their whole life was now being fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah. That this Lamb of God that they used to tell their kids about you know, at night, that when they painted the blood over the doorpost, but that Jesus, he was now the new Lamb of God. That this Passover meal that they would have had once a year, that Jesus was now the fulfillment. He was the new Passover in him, in his own body. He was the Messiah. He was the one that Isaiah was referring to when he talked about a suffering servant and all of those things. And so... <clears throat> The disciples were making this great claim that Jesus was the fulfillment of the story, and so they were carrying on the story of Jesus. And that's really what the Great Commission is, because let's check out remember what it says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? So you baptize them into their gospel identity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know? Baptizing them, some traditions, put them down three times, right? Just to make sure it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? You're baptizing them into their gospel identity through Jesus, into the love of the Trinity, and then you're teaching them the things of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the way Jesus lived. It's not just cherry-picking a few Bible verses that apply to your life. Right? That's what the modern-day quiet time has become. And that's not a bad place to start. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to teach people what Jesus taught. And here's a really challenging question. Could we do that? Do we know what Jesus taught? Are we immersed enough in what Jesus taught to be able to teach others to do it? Because this is not for the professionals. This is for everyone. The Great Commission is for everyone, and therefore everyone should be able to do it, all in our own ways. But the way that we do it is by becoming immersed in an understanding of who Jesus was and what he did, right? And so we teach the story of Jesus. And uh, the challenge I was trying to bring last week is often that we, we don't do that. The gospel becomes something else. It becomes bits and pieces of that, but not necessarily the story of Jesus. And so what started to happen was the apostles and Paul, who became an apostle as well, they started to make certain proclamations of who Jesus was. He's the Messiah. They started to talk about different things that Jesus had done and said. And as I said, they did that orally. And these proclamations grew out of the life of the early church. And it kind of became the Jesus tradition. So um, it might just be me, but I always really find this very fascinating, okay? Because basically, they didn't have a Bible. Most of them couldn't read. But yet, there was a body of teaching that somehow got preserved that got passed around. And um, and it was referred to. Uh, and eventually, they wrote it down. And eventually, what they wrote down became authoritative. And eventually, these things got canonized and became the Bible. But that didn't happen for a few hundred years, right? So, it's uh, it, it it's interesting. So, the... Th- so, so the thought that the Bible just kind of dropped out of the sky into the laps and goes, here God says, this is the Bible, this is what to put in and what not to, in like one kind of download, it didn't happen like that, right? It got pieced together, and the Holy Spirit was orchestrating all of that over the centuries in order that we have what we have today. But the point is, and the very exciting thing is, it didn't come with somebody sitting in like a university room thinking, this is what the Bible is going to be and all of that. It came as people did the stuff as they were faithful to the Great Commission, and as they trusted, as we get to, the Holy Spirit to direct them and guide them as they got on with doing what Jesus said. And these were referred to, I, I talked last week about the Jesus tradition. And so in Paul's early letters, he'll say things like the traditions, the instructions, the commandments. In his middle letters, he'll talk about the rule, the faith, The rule of faith, the pattern, the elementary principles. It talks about that in Colossians. And then when he gets to his latter letters like Timothy and Titus, the ones before he dies, he talks about holding on to the deposit of sound doctrine. What's he talking about there? He's talking about all of these kind of teachings of Jesus that the apostles have preserved, that Paul has written to the early church to help them get established as new believers in the faith. You with me? Yeah. So this this is how this all comes together. And what we said last week was that um, a helpful way to understand it is twofold. <laughs> I don't I don't know why, either. right? The kerygma, right? The, the first one. Um, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus today. All right. Just just in case, I'm not like I'm not, I'm not like trying to push my face in. Okay. It's a technical glitch, right? The the kerygma, okay, is the is the uh, is the proclamation, right? So it's helpful to think of the Jesus tradition that was passed down from Jesus. This is what I really want us to really get a hold of. I'm doing this today not because I want us just to think we're become more knowledgeable. I'm doing this because I want us, to, and as a leadership, we want to be a church that connect who we are to the founder. Because the founder is Jesus. Because without being hypercritical, okay, there's an awful lot of churches that don't look like the founder. There's an awful lot of Christians today that don't look like the founder. The founder is Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to orientate our lives around him. We want to understand his teachings, okay? And, uh, and we want to have soft, soft hearts so that we don't get caught up in our own pride, in our own agendas, in our own kind of heavy kind of egotistical often driven doctrine that we can prove we're right. I don't, we don't want to go that way. We want to keep our hearts soft, be immersed in the Scriptures, so that we can be like the founder. Because ultimately, he is the head, and we are the body. We look like him. We are his hands and feet in the earth. So this way I want, you just to try and under, I want us to try and understand this, so that we can get inside it. And when it comes to the Jesus tradition, and how it developed, and how then the, the letters are written, right? remember what I said last week, the letters are written first. So the letters were all written around A.D., 50, 60, 70, right? The Gospels are written maybe 20 years after that. And so these were the words of the apostles taken from Jesus himself as it apprenticed him, put into the heart of local churches to help them get established and to look like Christ. And so the, 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 the theologians over the years have divided this into two different things that help us understand. And the first part of the Jesus tradition was the kerygma. And it's known as the preaching and proclamation. I said this last week. And it's basically the core elements of the story of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And um, you could say it in different ways, but here it goes. Jesus was sent to Israel by God. He went about doing good. The Jews put him to death. God raised him up. The apostles saw him, ate with him, and were ordered to preach this message. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and all who trust in him will be forgiven for their sins. And all of this was predicted by the prophets, 300 prophecies at least that we know of that were pointing to Jesus. That was the core message. And if you watch Paul's sermons and Peter's sermons through the book of Acts, you will see that the kerygma became the core threads of the story of Jesus and how he was fulfilling the whole story of the universe, of history itself, okay? That that was the basic tenets. And what I was saying last week, and just reinforcing slightly this morning again, is that this was not just some nice little neat and tidy doctrine on a piece of paper. This was bold proclamation that probably, potentially, got you martyred. Because to say Jesus is Lord was completely revolutionary scandalous in the ears of some, to the Jews, because he could never have been the Messiah in their head, the carpenter from Nazareth, and to the Romans, it was like it was like proper offense, because Caesar was the Lord, and they would have used language like that, Caesar is Lord, they would have used language like Caesar is the firstborn from the dead, they would have used language like Caesar is the image of God, and so these passionate Jewish followers of Jesus would have said, no, we don't believe that. We'll pray for you because nobody gets their authority unless it's given to them by God. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That was their message. And so what I wanted us to, um, and I just want to reinforce this today, Jesus is Lord is offensive to every other system and principality and power, Jesus is Lord. To every other person or system that is hungry for power, it's an offensive. It's offensive to that in the right way because we have to bow, in every other principality, every other system, every other name, it bows its name. That Jesus is Lord, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And if our ideologies do not lead to Jesus as Lord, or if they lead to Jesus plus somebody else as Lord, then it's not good theology. It's actually an idol in our lives. And we want to be careful that we don't go there. Jesus is Lord. All we sung it this morning. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of heaven and earth. This is a cosmic Christ. He's conquered Everything in the principalities powers, and He reigns supreme, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then <clears throat> the Didache, the teachings. Um, this is what I want to spend a little bit more time on this morning. Let me just take a drink. Becoming a follower of Jesus meant a complete transformation was going on in your life. It was going to take place. It meant living contrary to the systems and structures of the world. It meant a totally different posture, a reconditioning of our mindsets. It meant a renovation of our hearts. It meant that you weren't just believing in a system or in a dogma. But as we sung this morning, you were allowing the affections and the disordered loves of our lives to be reordered in and towards the person of Jesus. That's what it meant. It meant a complete renewing of the mind. It meant a renovation of the heart. It was all the disordered affections of our life being reordered in and through to the person of Jesus. I want to encourage us when we we sing songs like that. You know, one of the best things you can do with your life is tell Jesus that you love him. That you love him that you love him with everything that you've got. Just telling Jesus that, you, yeah, just giving him all the affection of your heart. Sometimes we're not really encouraged to do that in church or, or we're encouraged to do that in ways that are relatively, like, restrained. You know, but Jesus wants us to tell us that he loves, we want to tell Jesus we love him with every, it's not supposed to be something, we're not brains on a stick. You know, we're, we're, we're made body, soul, and spirit. Right, with a heart and a soul and a mind and a will and an emotion. We're holistic in that way, if you want to say it. Tell Jesus you love him with everything that you've got. And that, that's what these early apostles did. They were white hot, as we've said before, on love with Jesus. And they started to follow with their whole lives, not just with their heads. This is what I want us to get <clears throat> over this series. I want us to try and move away from simply thinking that we'll have to understand it all just in our heads. That's important, right? But we, we want our whole lives, our whole postures to be ordered around the person of Jesus because he was not he was the way, the truth, and the life. And we want to be followers of the Jesus way. In Acts chapter 22, it describes for us that the early Christians were not called Christians, right? That didn't happen for a while. The early Christians were actually called followers of the way, right? It tells us in Acts chapter 22, Paul was describing how he used to persecute them before he got radically transformed. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way. They were identified by the way that they walked. They were identified by how they lived their life, not just what they knew. And that's really, really important. Because if you're a new believer, I know lots of new believers. I talked to one last week, and she is hungry for Jesus. I mean, like, if I had a little bit more of her hunger at the moment, I would be happy. She's only saved, I would say, a couple of years. And she's, she's just hungry for Jesus. And it did my heart good just sitting, talking to her. And at one point, she says, Sometimes, though, I just get, I was trying to encourage her, and she says, Sometimes just get a little bit intimidated, you know, because I don't know everything. And I was like, Oh, oh, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep on kind of wanting to know and learn. But don't, for one minute, you start getting intimidated by everybody else that knows more, because if they had half your hunger at the moment, if they had half the passion that you have to be with Jesus, to lay your affections at the feet of Jesus. Then they would probably be in a better place with the Lord, all right. And and so these are followers of the way, and uh, we want to be a church who embody a message and a lifestyle rather than just know stuff cognitively in our brains. And uh, and the early church, as I said, they 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 lived their way into a new way of um, thinking, not just thought their way into this. And uh, and and so I really love. This message of Jesus—it's what—it's what, and how I want to describe it today is <laughs> at the at the heart of this is is going to a big theological word is the word hermeneutic, and it's a way that we read the Bible. It's kind of a framework for how we think about things, a worldview, if you like. And the the hermeneutic, if you want to put it like that, the worldview of Jesus is the way of love. So here's me up front, right, just keeping it simple, right? The cookie's right down on the bottom shelf, right? I want us to read the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible. Because Jesus read the Bible, and he quoted the Bible a lot. He quoted the Old Testament, and he quoted certain bits of it. And I think we should take notice of the bits that he quoted. What was he trying to tell us, right? Because most of you are old enough, mature enough to know you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And the Bible in the hands of people that don't have a love for Jesus. well History has told us, hasn't it? I don't really need to finish the sentence because you know the answers. right? And the, and the dangerous thing, and why this is actually so relevant today is, right? <laughs> as I was trying to alluded to last week, in, di- in different contexts globally at the moment, right? the Bible in the hands of people that don't really love Jesus, right? Is It dangerous? It becomes dangerous because it becomes p- proposed for all sorts of things that don't actually carry the heart and spirit of Jesus. And that's why, I, and I don't say any of this, hopefully it doesn't come across in any kind of, I hope it doesn't pr- prideful way, like I've got it all sorted because I don't. I'm saying this to you because I actually want to hold myself accountable before you uh, and us towards one another, that we gather and submit our hearts around the Bible under the lordship of Jesus and through the anointing and filling of his Holy Spirit. That's why a local church is important because you can listen to all the podcasts and watch all the God channel that you want, right? Which is helpful maybe, right? That's not. But, but if, you, if you submit your heart to, to, to Jesus and to one another around the Bible, that's where the depth is. That's where the richness is. And that's where we become humble inquirers of the way of Jesus and how we grow into that <clears throat> more and more. And Jesus came to help show us, to help, on, and, and <clears throat> I, I want to try and hopefully explain this well today. Jesus came to show us that the fulfillment of the whole Bible, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law that it went before was himself. That he was going to reveal The character of God. The self-sacrificial, self-emptying love of who God is. And so Jesus came speaking about a righteousness that exceeded a moral code of external righteousness. Jesus came saying, I am the fulfillment of this law. It's not you measuring yourself against other people and using the law to do that, to prove how holy you are. No, I'm coming and I'm calling you To fulfill this law by actually coming to the end of yourself. By actually realizing that in and of your own strength you can't keep this law. But that there's a gift of grace that's coming to you to be filled with my life to help you fulfill this law. Because I want to write it on your hearts. And only then are you going to be able to keep that when you open your hearts up to the free gift of grace. So that I can write my law on your hearts. And so Jesus would come to do for mankind what they couldn't do for themselves. He came to fulfill the law, and the only way he could fulfill the law was to become the sacrifice for sins in and of his own body and to take all the consequences of evil and sin into his own body, allow humanity to do its very worst on him, in order that he could deal with all that was broken, so that in and through him he could renew it all. And so at the cross we see the greatest ever sacrifice, self-sacrificial act that history has ever seen and known. And it changes the world as we come to see. And then he called you and me to that same kind of life. That's the Jesus way. Self-sacrificial love. Right? And I don't know about you, but I can't do that on my own. I can't fulfill that on my own strength. I don't even try <laughs> sometimes. Something else has to come upon me. Something else has to be done inside of me. A change has to happen. And I want to introduce you to another Greek word today. Is that okay? You're doing a wee bit of Greek this morning, right? Right. <laughs> These are Bible words, though, so uh, I'm not that apologetic about it, right? Because we can we can teach other stuff, but let's just stick to Bible words, right? And the, 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 this is the word the theologians call the word kenosis, right? And um, it's a Greek word that's used in the Bible, and it's the word that's used for the act of self-emptying. And so theologians you are into that have written all sorts of different kind of ways of canonic theology, which is the, is, the, is the study into what did Jesus actually divest of himself before he came to earth. All right? Anyway, and the key text for this is a well-known one. So let me read it. And so this is Paul. I want you to understand, link this together where I'm reading this. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's telling the church in Philippi, I want you to be people that follow in the way of Christ. Follow the thread here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others others more significant than yourselves. Right? That sounds like the Jesus way, doesn't it? Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That sounds like the Jesus way, doesn't it? Now, what does he go on? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he said, I want you to follow the Jesus way, and then he just reminds us what it's like. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Look, here's the word kenosis, or the idea. But he emptied himself. He he emptied himself. Being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, I mean, so we didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equal with God the Father. In the very form of God. But he emptied, he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. We're going to remember the Lord before we finish today. And what we're going to remember is the emptying, the self-emptying posture of the God who threw the stars into space. The God who spoke forth creation. This is the God who empties himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed in him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every name he would buy, in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the essence of Jesus' teaching the way of love. the posture of Jesus' life, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. This is the Apostles' Doctrine. This is why Paul is saying, I want you who are claiming to follow Jesus to have the same way and the same mind and things, to develop a posture and a reflex. It actually becomes instinctive over time. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why coming to church is so important. That's why having good fellowship." around you and people that hold you account is so important so that almost your response to following Jesus becomes a natural kind of reflex to have the same mind as Christ. That the old man stops being the reflex less and less. He shows his head less and less as we grow into Christ-likeness. And so there's this seminal kind of moment in the Scriptures where a lawyer comes to Jesus Right now, you know, a lawyer comes to Jesus, so he's obviously coming to try and catch Jesus out. And all the different rabbis have different interpretations of the law because there was at least, I think it was 613 different commandments the Ten Commandments, plus all the additions, plus all the amendments after that. And all the rabbis had different ways of understanding the law and different interpretations of which ones you should apply and which ones you shouldn't apply. And they kind of measured one another's holiness against that. So they were using the law to try and convince themselves that they were, the, they were like the, the zealots. They were the the ones that most passionate about the law. And so the lawyer comes to Jesus. Now, could you imagine, right? Could you imagine having an expectation on your life that if you were to measure up to the holiness of God, that you would have to keep all of them, or at least some of them, in a pretty routine, rigorous way? Can you imagine how much you'd be like watching your back, and how much you'd be feeling shame and condemnation and all of those kind of things. And so the lawyer comes to Jesus, probably surrounded by some of the Pharisees, going, all right, then, if you're the rabbi, Jesus, you tell us what your interpretation of the law is. And Jesus is just like genius at this moment. Absolute genius. And Jesus says this. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. All right, just stop there for a moment. That would have been pretty standard. Because that lawyer or that Pharisee, if he was a good Jew, would have said that. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Every morning and every night. Jesus himself as a little boy would have jumped up onto his mom's knee in the morning and in the evening. And they would have said, it was called the Shema in, 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 in Israel's kind of tradition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was like morning and evening prayers. So they knew this. But then Jesus does this. He says, and the second is like it. Then he lifts another verse out of Leviticus. I'll show you this in a moment. He shall love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So it's summed up in, in what we what I like to call the Other people call the Jesus Creed. And so he's taken the first verse from Deuteronomy six, and then he takes the second verse from Leviticus chapter nineteen, and he puts them both together, and he says the great commandment comes together in these two particular verses: love the Lord your God with all of your heart, just like we've been talking, with all the affections of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love him with everything that you have. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law is summed up in these. All of the law. Yeah, hang them all on these two commands. And so what he's saying is the central moral category for the kingdom of God is is love. Kenosis kind of love. It looks like mercy. And if you're not sure who your neighbor is, Jesus then continued, you'll remember it. You'll know the story. Because somebody said, well, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus starts to tell them that parable of the good Samaritan. And Jesus is basically saying, I don't care if you're a priest. Or I don't care if you're a Levite. In other words, in today's language, I don't care even if you're the pastor. I don't care how much of the Bible you know. I don't don't care how many times you've led worship at the front. If you don't show mercy. Who was was the neighbor, Jesus says to the Pharisee, to the lawyer? I suppose, he says, the one who shows mercy. If we don't show mercy, we're not people of radical, self-sacrificial love. Then we're not really looking like Jesus. This was the Apostles' doctrine. This was the core of it. Love is an active verb. It's a life of kenosis, a life of mercy. Ultimately, Jesus wouldn't just teach it, ultimately, Jesus would show it, wouldn't he, in his own life? And that's why when Paul is trying to describe all of this to the early church and flesh it out, this is why he would say this. This is in Romans, one of the early churches. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Right? There you go. Anybody owe anyone a lock a pound? (laughs) Right? Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, right? And whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. What does that sound like? That sounds like Paul is quoting Jesus, doesn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds like just the apostle quoting the words of the founder and helping the early church understand that if we're going to go up into Christ-likeness, they need to look like Jesus Because love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul goes on to try and flesh this out. But basically what we realize is that this love of Christ, it revolutionized the Torah, the Old Testament. It revolutionized it into an understanding that this is all fulfilled in self-sacrificial love. And not only does it revolutionize the Jewish way of understanding the Old Testament, it reorders the world. It turns it all upside down, or the right way up. It flips the world on a whole axis. Because in a world that's hungry for power, and a world that's hungry for fame, and a world that was hungry for ego, we have a mighty Roman Empire. Jesus kind of flips it all around by showing us that the greatest, most powerful act that ever happened in the history of the world was the most self-sacrificial act in the history of the world. I try and get your head around that. The most powerful act of history in the world was the most self-sacrificial act of history in the world. And it conquered sin and death and hell and every single darkness that you can ever think of. It flips the world upside down. And the new creation begins. And so we are to be people of this new creation. We are to be people of radical, selfless, sacrificial love. And so... I'm just going to read through these quickly. It'll be, don't worry about remembering these. But as Paul tried to teach the church them, you could argue that this Didache, the teachings, could be summed up in this kind of uh, in these kind of ways. Right? And these are the kind of key themes that come through Paul's letters. Okay? So we're just going to like, read through these, and you'll see how practical and Paul is trying to make them in the context of these early churches. Now, get, so, some, most of these churches are all in pagan Gentile territory. So they didn't even have the Old Testament. So it's like he's starting from scratch with these guys. right? And he's trying to help them. What does this life of kenosis love look like? Each believer would be encouraged to lay aside his old life, renew his mind in the teaching, and conform to God's will. Put off the old man. Number two, a new set of virtues only possible through God's resources are to characterize each believer. So Paul teaches them the fruit of the Spirit. If you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, what should it look like? It looks like something. It should look like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, faithfulness, self-control, all of those kind of things. Individual households must be ordered properly, consistent with God's created design for man and for the church, right? These were uh, recommendations that Paul was saying, how husbands should love their wives if they're going to say they're followers of Jesus, how you should treat your children, how the family should operate as Christians. Four, God's household, that's the, ch- the church this time, which is the pillar and support of the truth, must be ordered accordingly to the sound doctrine received from the apostles. Paul uh, is, he doesn't beat behind the door. Is that the right phrase? Yeah. Something like that, right? For anyone, about anyone who comes with a different doctrine, anything other than Jesus is Lord, he's all over that like a rash. Because he is like, this is the message. Jesus is Lord. And not only the message, but the way. If they're coming in to teach you this, but they're fleecing you for money, he hammers them for that as well, because he's, he's, he's desiring more than anything else that these young baby churches get established in the story and in the message of Jesus and in the way of Jesus, which is what we want to try and follow too. Each believer must be committed and do his part, both generally in one another's ministries and specifically in the use of his gifts and the building up of the church. Those references obviously replied that A pattern of relationships within the church must be observed, characterized by love, brotherhood, mutual acceptance, and respect, in which each is to diligently pursue unity in the bond of peace. That's why when you read the New Testament, Paul says, you just don't take each other to court, do you? Christians, like, do, doing that, you don't, you know, you don't... You, <laughs> Sorry, sorry. You don't you, you don't do things like that? If we are the ones that are supposed to stru- steward the new humanity, how can like two of you stand before a judge and like let them work it out when when you can? I know there's nuance to that. Both parties need to be willing to do that, da da da. But those are the kind of things that Paul is is getting at? Paul wanted the churches to be established and to hold on to the sound doctrine. And what I'm trying to help you understand over the last two weeks is that didn't mean that they would just simply be intelligent in their Bibles in terms of they would no loads, and to would be able to impress you with like memorizing loads of Scripture and like wheeling off these verses. When Paul says he wants the churches to hold the sound doctrine, he wants them to hold the way of Jesus and the, and, and the message of Jesus. That was core and fundamental to who he was. And so one of the implications for that is that we would hold the sound doctrine and that we would read the read the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible. And that we wouldn't cherry-pick verses to win arguments. But that we would proclaim the message in the way of Jesus, in the way that he did. And that's what I think it is to hold the sound doctrine. And amazingly, that's what the early church did. People responded by what they saw. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just leave that. Just finish. Let me finish with this because I want us to break bread this morning. How was the whole? How was it delivered? We said these two things last week. I just want to reiterate them today. We know what the Apostles' Doctrine was, but how, how was it taught? And it was taught through a total reliance on the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told the disciples after he told them it was better for him to leave. I've spoken this way, I'm still with you, but the advocate the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. The Holy Spirit reminds them And we can see that now, can't we? When we look back and think, how on earth did the apostles do this? How did they see so many churches established without a manual? They did it through the breath of the Spirit and their continual openness to the Holy Spirit. See, we still need that same level of revelation today as we unpack the Word of God. And we've now, got, we've now got the New Testament. We still need the Holy Spirit's revelation. Bill Johnson says this, and this is quite, I think this is good, actually. Okay, it says this. It's hard to have the same fruit as the early church when we value a book they didn't have above the Holy Spirit they did have. Think about that for a moment. Because in Northern Ireland, it's very much you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. You know, it's a father, son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I was going to try and just add to that, but he adds to it better than I will. That statement is not intended to get us to put less value in Scripture. That would be a great mistake. Go where? Nearly there. <clears throat> it's a the devil, isn't it? <laughs> in disguise, my face, right? That statement is not intended to get us to put less value in Scripture. That would be a great mistake. I simply point to the fact that without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a closed book. The Bible was written in such a way that only those in relationship with God have ongoing access to its mysteries. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see truth. Jesus is the truth. We long to understand. Jesus Christ is perfect theology, right? The Word The infallible Word of God is Jesus, right? And we need the Holy Spirit to help us. So every time you open the Word of God, just take a few moments in silence. Lord, in these moments, I want to put down my own filters. Even the stuff I want you to say to me this morning, I'd like you to say to me, just lay that down. You might well say that, but just lay that down. Holy Spirit, just come now. Be my guide. Be my leader, be my shepherd, be my best friend. Come and speak to me as you read the word of God. See, there's a danger. I'm just wanting to bring this all to kind of land where we remember the Lord here. There's a danger when we talk about the Apostles' Doctrine that we simply think of catechisms, confirmations that some of us maybe went through when we were younger. We think of the creeds and um, liturgies and repetitive kind of creeds and 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 they're actually really good. And when you were, lo- if you were to look at the content of them, you would think, well, that's not actually that far away from this stuff that we've been talking about—the the apostles' doctrine. The reality is, of us, is that many of us know lots of people, and even maybe our own lives, that went through confirmation classes or catechisms that aren't walking with God, and maybe weren't even really when they were going through them. Now, for some people, they were really shaped by those things. And when it worked, that was that was amazing. But the reality is and what I want to get to as I finish, and the importance of understanding that this was totally reliant on the Holy Spirit was the whole the doctrine. If you want to put it, like, I'd give a form, I'd give a, a a form and shape to the way of life that people were supposed to live. But you still need the fire. And it all started with the fire. It all started at Pentecost, when the fire came down and lit up these normal men and women with a passion and a desire for the Lord. And many of us have maybe been brought up actually in just like crazy sort of charismatic Pentecostal things where all the talk has been about the fire and maybe very little form and shape. And what does this actually look like on a Monday morning? And the reality is, as we come to remember the Lord this morning, we need the form, but we need the fire. We need the fire of God. We need the Holy Spirit detonation in our hearts and our spirits, sending us into a place of revelation of the goodness of God and His beauty and wonder, like we can't just get by studying things with our brains. We need the fire of His presence coming upon us. The kingdom of God, Paul would say, is not just a matter of talk, but of power. It's something outside of ourselves that comes upon us. And the transformation will only happen when the fire comes. And if we want to see an awakening of God's Spirit, that's what I'm living for, in this nation in our time, or at least to set it up for the generation coming before us we need the fire and we need the form. If we want to see more than just a good meeting, but we want to see this rolled out into every sphere of society, we need the fire and we need the John Wesley, who led maybe the greatest awakening in history after Pentecost itself, he was in a meeting one night, and what does it say? His heart was what? Strangely warmed. What does that mean? That means the fire came. He'd been a minister for years, but then one day the fire came and did something in his heart. And then he went on and he he developed all these methods, the Apostles' Doctrine, if you like, and he made environments for people to be discipled. He put a form to it. They were called methods, right? The, the method of discipleship. And funny enough, they became known as the Methodists, right? Because it was a fire and because it was the form. And as, as we close this out, um, these four different practices, what I really want us to think about as we break bread is, God, thank you for the apostles' doctrine. Help us to be people that tell the story of Jesus and follow in the Jesus way, that submit our hearts to the way of Jesus, that live that merciful kenosis, emptying of ourselves kinds of life. But that we remember as we do it that we can't do it. We can't do it without the fire of God. And if you need an injection of the fire of God, something that you can't explain, just with words, you can only get it when you look into somebody's eyes and you go, "Holy, holy, God, <laughs> God!" I was gonna say, "Holy smoke, holy God, more reverent, Right, God, you've done something in this person's life. You've you've captivated their hearts. That's what happened with these early followers of Jesus, and then they get on with a uh, on the job, on the job training. Fleshing out the apostles' doctrine in real life. They reminded each other that if Jesus was Lord, it meant surrendering every other vain ambition. If Jesus is Lord, it means renouncing every other Lord. If Jesus is Lord, it means loving Jesus with all the affections of your heart. If Jesus is Lord, it means you love him in your homes. You treat your spouse better than you do yourself. It's not easy, but that's what it means if Jesus is Lord. You lay your life down for them. If Jesus is Lord then you don't go along with the grumblers. If Jesus is Lord, you speak out and you pray for your politicians and for those in authority so that we might live a peaceable and quiet life. If Jesus is Lord, it means you don't be the drama queen or king in your workplace. But you go the extra mile. You work hard. You don't try to get away with stuff if you're a follower of Jesus. That's all the stuff. It's all in the Bible. That's what Jesus is Lord means. If Jesus is Lord, you speak up for truth. You challenge injustice in the right way. If Jesus is Lord, you honor authority. If Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. Because that's that's what it means when Jesus, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And if we want to be followers of his way, we need his fire. And we need to form in order to lead us into that. Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment. Dossie, would you come? Um, sorry, we've just gone over slightly here today, but let's just take five minutes because i would really love us to remember Jesus this morning.